Let's stand for the reading of God's Word this morning. Luke chapter 12, verse 22, down through verse number 31. Uh, we'll read these verses responsibly. I'll begin in 22 by myself. We'll begin together in 23. We'll read in that pattern down through the 31st verse. The Bible says, And he said unto his disciples, Therefore I say unto you, Take no thought for your life what ye shall eat, neither for the body what ye shall put on. Together, the life is more than meat, and the body is more than raiment. Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap, which neither have storehouse nor barn, and God feedeth them. How much more are ye better than the fowls? And which of you, with taking thought, can add to his stature one cubit? If ye then be not able to do that thing which is least, why take ye thought for the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They toil not, they spin not. And yet I say unto you that Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. If then God so clothe the grass, which today is in the field, and tomorrow is cast into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O ye of little faith? And seek not ye what ye shall eat, or what ye shall drink, neither be ye of doubtful mind. For all these things do the nations of the world seek after, and your Father knoweth that ye have need of these things. But rather seek ye the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added unto you. The title of our first caution that Christ offers us as a command is this, Don't be anxious. Don't be anxious. We live in a world that's filled with anxiety. And uh, this Luke 12 passage is paralleled in Matthew chapter 6. And passages like Luke 12 and Matthew 6, they get overshadowed by verses like, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. If you're familiar with that verse, would you raise your hand for me this morning? Seek ye first. That is a great verse. And uh, uh, many sermons have been preached out of that. I've preached sermons out of that verse. But let me just say this morning that sometimes verses of that nature can cast a shadow on verses like these and they get overlooked and don't get preached on this morning. Jesus had a lot to say about anxiety and we're going to look at that in great depth this morning. Let's have a word of prayer and we'll jump into the message. Thank you God for bringing us here. Lord, I know that the sermon this morning will be very applicable to a whole lot of people. Some folks here battle anxiety every day of their life or most every day of their life and then Lord, others may be more like me where they live uh, anxiety-free the majority of the time, but when life really gets difficult, um, we can have sleepless nights and our minds can race. And Lord, we have those seasons of anxiety. Lord, You commanded us to not be anxious. You commanded us to not take thought for our life. You commanded us to be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving to let our request be made known Unto God. So this morning, may we be challenged through the Word of God to lay anxiety to the side. And Lord, find rest and peace in our soul and our hearts and our minds through You. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Boy, I hope you listen this morning. Before I get into uh, my sermon notes I have prepared right before me, I want to say that a topic like this one is uh, a touchy topic. And I know that. I know that up front. I know that when I preach on this subject that I am uh, dealing with something where people are, uh, they're tender. It's a tender topic. And when, some, when a pastor is preaching on an area that's tender, it is easy to get offended. 
Can I say at the very beginning of my sermon, it is not my heartbeat or desire to offend anybody today. We're going to deal with a delicate topic where people have a lot of strong opinions. And I'm going to do my very best to not give you an opinion, but to give you the Word of God. All of my opinions will be based out of Scripture and will hang on Scripture. And I want to ask you this morning to on purpose work to not be offended. To understand that my heartbeat this morning is to help you, not attack you or hurt you. And that's my desire. I believe God has called me to be a shepherd, an under-shepherd. I believe He's given me a compassionate shepherd's heart. And so sometimes the shepherd has to pick up the little lamb or the sheep and comfort and console. Other times the shepherd has to correct. And so today my heartbeat is to help you. If there is correction, it will be with the idea of getting you to a better place where you are in a, um, you're in a place of less anxiety and fear. Understand my heartbeat on this. Let me begin by saying this. Long before our culture put an emphasis on mental health, Jesus came into this world and taught on this very subject. In fact, the Bible, the canon of Scripture, has a whole lot to say on the topic of mental health. One mistake that many churchgoers make is that they mix together secular, godless psychology with the Bible and what it has to say. And they believe that somehow uh, principles given to us by someone like a Sigmund Freud and the Word of God uh, deserve to be on equal playing field. And let me just say this up front, that as a whole, secular psychology was developed, modern secular psychology was developed by and, uh, and principled in, uh, rather, give, we were given principles uh, from men who did not even believe in a Creator God. And so when you allow what culture at large tells you to believe about your psyche or your mind, uh, and those people did not believe in the Creator of the mind, My friend, you're walking down a very dangerous path. It isn't that God in the Bible is one reference and secular psychology is another reference and they're on equal playing field. Hear what I'm about to say. God in the Bible deserves to be put up on a pedestal and it should be the word that tells us how the mind works and how the mind is healed. The Word of God was written by the author... God, who is your Creator, who made your mind. Long before you turn to medicine or a doctor, you need to study out the Bible in great depth and exhaust everything it says about this topic before you look to the world and what it, what it teaches or believes. Many people want to run to a pill and they haven't even opened, cracked open a Bible to consider what God's Word says. I strongly believe that we have a world that is uh, turning up anxiety on purpose to drive the pharmaceutical industry. That make billions of dollars over people who are anxious. And you know what those pills often do? They mask our problem. They don't eliminate our problem. Now, if a doctor put you on something, a doctor needs to take you off of something. Please don't take my preaching today and just go quit your medicine. Let me say that again. If a doctor put you on something, a doctor needs to be the one to take you off of that something. Don't you just take what I'm preaching and say, well, I'm quitting medicine. There can be some serious side effects from that. 
you be very careful. But understand that behind the scenes in our culture, anxiety is being driven on purpose so that drugs can be sold. I want us to do a Bible study in the introduction. Get your Bibles out. Whether you know these verses or not, I still want you to turn to them. And I want us to see what God's Word has to say about the mind. Alright, first verse, turn over to Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12. Now normally when we do this, I'll take you from left to right through the Bible. I'm not going to do that this time. These verses are in a particular order for a particular reason. But get ready to turn in your word in the Bible. If you don't know how to navigate a Bible very well, that's okay. Don't get frustrated because you can't keep up. If you can't keep up, just close your Bible if that's the case and listen to the Scriptures as they're read. Look at Hebrews chapter 4. And look at verse number 12. Now, my belief about the Bible and the mind came into crystal clear view a handful of years ago when I preached through the book of Hebrews verse by verse. And I got to Hebrews 3 and 4 and I realized that God has a lot to say about mental health in those two chapters. In fact, those two chapters address almost exclusively mental health. And verse number 12 of Hebrews 4 is the apex or the climax of that teaching. Many folks know Hebrews 4.12. In fact, I would gather, I would guess that most of you in here either have it memorized or are very familiar with the verse. But few people read and study the verses that lead up to it. Look at what verse, what verse 12 says. For the Word of God is quick. That word quick means alive. The Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of the soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow. Let's read the rest of the verse together. And is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. The thoughts and intents of the heart. Now, I'm going to give you some instruction on this, uh, give you some explanation of this. I'm going to use an illustration. While I'm doing that, turn over to Matthew 22. Matthew 22. The Bible is a sword that is meant to cut away those things that are unhealthy in our mind. Alright? Uh, I like to eat meat. I'm a big meat eater. I am carnivorous. Amen? And uh, I like when my wife cooks me a good piece of meat. I don't like a lot of fat in my meat. I understand that they put fat in meat uh, so that it adds flavor. I, I get that. I understand that. But sometimes a piece of meat can have too much fat in it for my liking. And I like when my wife takes a sharp knife and she cuts away some of the fat from that meat in order to make it less fatty when I go uh, to eat it. I am fatty enough. I don't need any extra help. Amen? And I like when my wife uses that knife to cut some of that fat away. You know what the Word of God does? It comes into your mind as you begin to soak your brain in the medicine of God's Word. The sword of the Lord, the Word of God comes along and it begins to slice away uh, thoughts in your mind that are unhealthy for you and it begins to heal your mind. It is a discerner of your thoughts and the intents of your heart. Look at Matthew 22. Look at verse number 37. Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy 
heart and with all thy soul. Finish the verse with me. And with all thy mind. Stop there. With all thy mind. Uh, and so we're to love the Lord with all of our church, our mind. And God wants uh, all of our mind to love Him. All of our mind. Turn over to Philippians chapter number 2. Philippians chapter number 2. I don't think most of us know how to love God with our soul and our mind. Uh, Jesus is saying there, you are to love God with every fiber of your being. You are to love God with all of your thoughts. Uh, the thoughts of your heart and your mind ought to be that which are pleasing to the Lord and loving toward God. Philippians chapter 2. And look with me at verse number 5. Now, in Philippians 2, verses 1 through 4, uh, give us the uh, definition of the mind of Christ. And in verses 6 through 11, give us a description of the mind of Christ. Verse 5 is at the center of this. Look at verse 5. Read it with me, church. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. So, as a Christian, I have been commanded to take the mind of Christ, and I've been uh, commanded to engraft that into my mind. I am not to think secular thoughts. I am not to think sinful thoughts. I am not to think discouraging or depressing thoughts. I'm to take the mind of Christ and I am to engraft it into my head. Turn over to Romans chapter 8. Just a few books to the left. Romans chapter number 8. And verse number 6. Romans 8 and verse 6. I could get up here and tell you all this without using any Bible. But boy, I think it sure is a lot more effective when the Word of God is given. And we see how much the Bible has to say about the mind. And this talk about mental health has a lot to do with the mind. Look at Romans chapter 8 and look at verse number 6. For to be carnally minded is death. But to be spiritually minded, read it with me church, is life and peace. So we have two camps here. We've got the carnally minded camp that brings death. And in contrast, we have the spiritually minded camp that brings what? Life and life and what is that second one, church? Peace. Peace. Peace is the opposite of anxiety. Anxiety is the mind in a state of unrest. Peace is the mind in a state of rest. You see, the culture wants to push you into a carnal mind that brings to a culture of death. The Lord wants you to have His mind that brings you to a culture of life and peace. How about 1 Corinthians? Hold your place in Romans 8, because we're going to come back to Romans in just a minute. 1 Corinthians 2. Turn over there. One book to the right. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse number 16. And I'm giving you a bunch of Scripture. The Bible has a whole lot more to say about the mind than we have time to cover today, but I'm just trying to help you see in a dense introduction how much the Bible has to say on this topic. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and look at verse 16. For who hath known the mind of the Lord 
that he may instruct him. You know what Paul is saying here? Paul is asking a question that many people ask. Is this mind of Christ thing just some abstract idea, some Christian theory, some, some just uh, talk that's thrown around? Or is this actually something that can be practiced and understood? Is this something that can be developed and can be tangible? Look back at the verse here. Uh, verse 16, For who hath known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we... Have the mind of Christ. This is something that we can have. How about James chapter 1? Oh, James states it so well. Turn over there. James chapter 1. Two more passages by way of introduction. James chapter 1 and verse number 5. Uh, turn over there with me if you will. Uh, the, the, the mind of Christ is something that can be experienced and known. Let me get, give you a practical uh, tip here for this. All right. Um, how do you spend your time? How do you spend your time? I have noticed that as Americans have become less and less disciplined with their mind, anxiety and mental health have become more and more in the spotlight. Instead of being disciplined with our thoughts and our behaviors and our schedules, we've become undisciplined. Uh, I watched a documentary about social media some time back and I'm not attempting to be crass. I am attempting to make a point. One of the executives, a former executives of Facebook, said this. He said, the question is not, will you check your Facebook early in the morning? The question is, will you check it before you go to the bathroom or while you're going to the bathroom? That's straight from the mouth of a former executive who helped develop the algorithm. I, I, I have this tendency that the longer we look at a screen the more likely we are to be anxious. God did not make you to walk around and look like this all the time. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. Maybe if we got our face in His book before we put our face in Facebook... We know a little bit more about the mind of Christ. Jesus is the living Word. This is the written Word. Right? Jesus gives us peace. This gives us peace. Maybe we need a little more Bible in our lives. James 1, look at verse 5. If any of you lack wisdom... Let him ask of God that give it to all men liberally. He gives it out in great portions and upbraideth not. That means he doesn't uh, discern or play favors. And it shall be given him. Now, I'm not going to go as far as saying that wisdom is equivalent to peace, but I believe that they exist on the same boulevard. I believe they're probably neighbors with each other. And where there is wisdom, there is a sound mind. And where there is a sound mind, there is the ability to handle life's uh, tumults and, and circumstances that would bring about anxiety. And so, if you lack wisdom to know how to handle life's problems, get on your face and ask God for it. Look at verse 6. But let him ask in Faith, nothing wavering. For he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea, driven with the wind and tossed. You ever met somebody who's up here one day and they're down here the next day? And they're up here one day and they're down here the next day. Life is great and grand and glorious and man, I'm living the dream. And the next day, they're just depressed and sad and anxious and worried and fearful. The Bible says that if you don't walk in faith and you don't ask God for wisdom, you're going to be like a wave of the sea. Look 
verse number 7. For let not the man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. Let the brother of low degree rejoice in that he is exalted. So here we see the elements to a sound mind. We have uh, uh, we have a humility, verse 9, that uh, asks in faith, verse number 6, uh, for wisdom, verse 5. And what does that give us? That gives us a sound mind instead of a double mind of being anxious and then uh, full of faith and then full of fear and then full of faith and then full of fear and then full of faith. No, you're unstable because one day you're walking in faith and the next day you're walking in fear and you're back and forth. No, God does not want you to be double-minded. Let's finish out our introduction by looking at Romans chapter 12 and verse 1. Maybe the most common verse on the topic and the one that Christians are the most familiar with, but I saved it for last because I wanted to give us proper context of what the Bible has to say, specifically the New Testament has to say about the mind. And the Old Testament uh, would affirm what we're teaching, and boy, uh, we could spend years studying the topic of the mind just from the Old Testament alone. But look at with me at Romans 12, and look at verse number 1. Uh, Paul says to the church at Rome, he says, I beseech or beg you, Therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies. And by the way, your mind is part of your body. Your body is a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Look at verse 2. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Be not conformed, but be ye transformed. I see that Christians everywhere, they get enamored with the world. Now listen to me, listen to me, listen to me. If you're saved, you're walking, you are to walk in light and truth. Light and truth. Do you know that the culture setters, the trend setters, they walk in darkness, they do it confidently, but they walk in darkness and error. And they wander around in the darkness with great confidence and they scream their message which is false and blind. They're stumbling into pain and hurt everywhere they turn. And Christians get enamored with a culture. Christians get enamored with those in darkness and forget that they have the truth of the Word of God. And they are to walk in light. And they are to walk in truth. And they are to set the trends. They are to lead in, in righteousness. We forget that. And what happens is we end up becoming confused formed to the image of the world. Now, I don't know a lot about construction. I know how to destroy things, but when it comes to constructing things, uh, that's a little bit more difficult for me. But I've been around a lot of construction. We've had quite a bit of construction here done at the church over the last uh, seven years that I've been the pastor. And uh, the house next door to the church uh, was remodeled, and I got to watch that process. And occasionally I'll get in my car and I'll find where Brother Vara is working. I've done this a few times, and I'll pop my head in. And just out of curiosity, I want to see what he's doing. And while I don't know a lot about construction, I do know this, that if you're going to pour concrete, before you can pour the concrete, you have to create the mold. You with me? You create the mold, and then you bring in the concrete truck or the wheelbarrow, and you pour that liquid mold, a liquid uh, liquid concrete into the mold, and the liquid concrete conforms 
to the image of the mold. Do you know that this world wants to make take your mind and conform it to an image of chaos and confusion and pain and suffering? Because Satan hates God's creation and he is the one in the background of this. The Bible says in John chapter number 10, and we'll be looking at that tonight, it says that he, he has come to do three things, to, to kill or to steal, to kill and to destroy. The Bible says that God comes to give us life and life more abundantly. Oh, we're going we're gonna to look at that in great depth tonight. I sure hope you'll be back. Tonight's sermon greatly complements this morning's sermon. God does not want your mind to be conformed to the image of this world, but rather to be transformed. You know what that means? That means there's some thought processes that need to go. Now, I'm going to use a secular psychology word, but I'm not going to use it in the way they use it. All right? Something happens in your life and it triggers you. We're all familiar with that word trigger. Alright? What are you going to do? What are you going to do? Let me tell you. Something happens and you want to walk down a very dark, lonely path into pain and anxiety. Instead, you need to get on your knees and you need to pray. And you need to say, Lord, help me to break out of that mold and transform my mind. Instead of letting my mind go down this path into sin, help me to plow a new path, a thought process in my mind. And Lord, help me to be made anew. Renew my mind, Lord. I want to have a mind that's uh, like Yours. I want to have a mind that thinks like You do. Instead of falling in the trap of anxiety, I want a mind that's renewed. I want to be spiritually minded so I can know life and Peace. Life and peace. So, uh, I believe that anxiety comes as a result of faithlessness. Let me say that again. Anxiety is a result of faithlessness. You see, if a person truly believes that God is in control, and that God is looking after your best interest, and that your steps are ordered by Him, then, then you would not fret over those things that are outside of your control. Furthermore, you would do your best to obey Him and His tender grace and care makes up the difference when you fall short. Some years ago, uh, actually it was right after I got married, my wife and I were on a tight income. I think we had something like $17 left over every month if after we paid all our bills and went grocery shopping. We had no money. I was making, uh, I think our combined salary working at a Christian school was like, was like $30,000 a year. And that was both of us working full time, alright? It was tight. I mean, it was tight. And it would have been more in today's money. That was 16 years ago, but it was tight. And I remember that we like to eat out. How many of you here like to eat out? Raise your hand. Come on! Raise your hand if you like to eat out. And you know what we couldn't afford to do? We couldn't afford to eat out. But we were eating out anyway occasionally. And, uh, we had taken out a credit card in order to eat out. And we got ourselves in some credit card debt. I got us into some credit card debt. And I felt uh, I began to feel like, you know what, I don't deserve for God to bail me out of the situation. But you know what God did? He bailed us out of that situation because His mercies are new every morning. and His, his, his heart is gracious. You know, God understands that you're a child uh, in comparison to Him. You're a child and you're learning and you're growing. And He sees the steps you take. And you know what? Sometimes uh, our anxiety doesn't come from outside pressures. It comes from an inside pressure where we're holding ourselves to a high standard and we're being very difficult and hard on ourselves. And God says, hey, lighten up. You're walking in grace and not just the law. And you need to learn to trust my tender hand of grace. 
Write this down if you're taking notes. Anxiety is a state of mental unrest. Anxiety is a state of mental unrest. Anxiety is a state of mental unrest. God gives rest to the minds of those who fully and wholly trust Him. God gives rest to the minds of those who fully and wholly trust Him. I've got a great illustration to lay that out for you toward the end of the sermon. Alright, let's look at three simple truths this morning out of Luke chapter 12 as we consider the command of Christ, don't be anxious. Alright, let's jump in here and let's begin with point number one, our finances. Our finances. Pastor, what does anxiety have to do with money? Look, it's not my fault. Alright, this is where Jesus began, not me. So we're just taking the teaching of Jesus and we're going straight at it. Alright, uh, let's look with, uh, let's look at uh, the, uh, the first several verses of this teaching and we'll see how that God uses a farmer, the illustration of a farmer who had a great season in the field. This man was rich in this world's goods, but he was not rich toward God. Letter A, notice the farmer's uh, prosperity. The farmer's prosperity. Look with me at Luke chapter 12 and look at verse number 16. Luke 12 and verse number 16. The Bible says, And he, this is Jesus, spake a parable unto them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do? Because I have no room where to bestow my fruits. So, um, turn over to 1 Timothy chapter 6. Turn over to 1 Timothy 6. Hold your place in Luke 12. Everyone who is little aspires to grow up and be rich. This is what our culture tells us. If you grow up and have lots of money, then you are a success. And I believe this is one of the drivers of anxiety, is that we feel like we're less than unless we have lots of money. And we have to have lots of money. You know what? When I was little, I heard people talk about millionaires. And ooh, millionaires are put up on this pedestal as being the greatest people walking the earth. I mean, the only thing better than a millionaire is what, church? A billionaire. Oh, but 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 billionaire, and oh, if, if you can grow up and somehow become the elite of the elite and be a billionaire, then you are really a success. And most people, uh, even Christians, equate success with lots and lots of money. And uh, the image I get when I think of uh, childhood and money is I think of Scrooge McDuck diving into his. Uh, pool of gold coins. How many of you know what I'm talking about? You watch Scrooge McDuck dive down to the, and he's swimming around in the gold coins. And he's spitting them out like you would water. And boy, old Scrooge McDuck, if I could just grow up and be like McDuck, I would be a happy soul. I would have the world by the tail and I would have money. And you know what? The Bible actually has a very different opinion about success and the Bible has a different description of what money is and what it does to us. Look at 1 Timothy 6. Look at verse 9. Uh, Paul tells Timothy, Pastor Timothy, he says, But they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and hurtful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. Now that is the exact opposite of what the culture tells us about money. Paul says if you have money, if you're rich, you are going to fall into temptation, you're going to fall into snare, and you're going to be uh, surrounded by uh, hurt 
and destruction and perdition. That doesn't sound like what uh, we're told by the culture, does it? Look at verse 10. For the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some covet after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Many people had God before they found wealth, but when they found wealth, they forgot God. They set Him to the side, and they ceased to care about Him. They ceased to do what they were supposed to. We're down to verse 17, 1 Timothy 6. Now, this is what Paul is telling Pastor Timothy, and we know this is a pastoral epistle, and uh, boy, in Bible college, we study the pastoral epistles in great depth because this applied to us. So this is Christ's command to me, in essence, on how I am to lead you as the church. Look at 17. Paul tells Timothy, Pastor Timothy, with his church, charge them that are rich in this world. Challenge them, charge them, that they be not high-minded, nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who giveth us richly to uh, all things to enjoy, that they do good. So if you're rich, then here's how you're to behave. Look here. They do good, that they be rich in good works, uh, ready to distribute means you should be quick to give your money to those who are without. Willing to communicate. Laying up in store for themselves a good foundation against the time to come. That means that you're eternally minded. You're making investments that have eternal dividends. That they uh, may lay hold on eternal life. I think when we think of rich, we, we, we consider those who have more money than us and that we're not quick to label ourselves as rich. Um, do you know that if you live on the I-95 corridor between Washington, D.C. and Maine, you live where two-thirds of America's wealth exists. Two-thirds of America's wealth exists between Washington, D.C. and Maine on that corridor. And did you know that if you live there, you live in the upper, upper echelon of the wealthiest people, not only in America, but in the world? You say, well, I'm cash poor. Well, there's reasons why you're cash poor. If you live in this area, it's expensive to live here. It really is. Uh, rent is expensive. Move to Stanford, it's even more expensive. And then move to Manhattan, and it's even more expensive. It's expensive to live here. But can I tell you this? The fact that you get to live in a nice, comfortable home and drive a nice, comfortable car and wear nice Clothes, and I'm not preaching against these things because I live in a nice, comfortable home and I drive a nice car and I wear nice clothes. The fact that you get to do those things, that makes you rich. Don't look at people in Greenwich and Darien and say, well, I don't have their money, so I'm not wealthy. If you live in Stratford, Connecticut or the surrounding areas, you live much better than most of the people. It's likely you live much better than most of the people in the world. And if you don't believe me, travel to a third world country the way I have. And you'll see firsthand that you've got it pretty good. Now, this farmer was prosperous. There's nothing wrong with being prosperous. He had great success at harvest time. But he failed, listen up, he failed to give credit to God who had provided the prosperity instead. Oh, in his prosperity, he would fall into that snare, that, that temptation, that trap, and he would make a grave mistake. We see letter A, the farmer's prosperity. Letter B, notice the, farm, the farmer's presumption. 
the farmer's presumption. Look with me at verse number 18. Luke chapter 12 and verse number 18. So the farmers had a great harvest. He forgot who gave him that great harvest. And he said, this will I do. I will pull down my barns and build greater. And there will I bestow all my fruits and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, thou hast made good. Uh, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease. Eat, drink, and be merry. Now church, when you start talking to yourself in the third person you might have a problem with arrogancy and being high-minded. He says, Soul, you are a rich man. You don't need to work anymore. Just, you know, have a good time with life. He wanted nothing more than to take his own ease, to eat, drink, and be merry. Verse number 19 tells us. What are the equivalents to that? Well, Take thine own ease. Take his own ease. That means entertainment. I just want to be entertained all the time. Oh, we live in a a culture drunk on entertainment. Our kids are drunk on entertainment. If you don't believe me, try to take their cell phone away or their YouTube away and watch how much they whine and cry and have withdrawals. And it's not just the kids, it's the adults too. You know what it means to eat? It doesn't mean to you know, eat uh, a simple meal. That means to dine at fine restaurants. How about to drink? That means that we have the finest and rarest of wines in our wine cellar. How about to be merry? Well, that's an implication of the party life. So what did this man want to do with his wealth? He wanted to worship his own autonomy. He wanted to fall into the trap of humanism. He wanted entertainment. He wanted fine dining restaurants. He wanted to drink on sip on the finest of wines. And he wanted the party life. Before you become judgmental of this farmer, stop and ask yourself, how would I behave if all of a sudden I came into generational type wealth? Would you quit your job? Some of you are retired. You say, I don't have a job to quit. Amen. Congratulations. I'm happy for you. Uh, Maybe a little jealous, but I'm happy for you. No, I'm teasing. Uh, Would you change the way you treat people? A lot of times rich people, money messes people up. Have you noticed that? Listen up, church. Do you like it when you run into someone at Nordstrom's or some high-end department store and they look you up and down at what you're wearing and then they just kind of walk the other way? You don't like that, do you? How do you treat people from Bridgeport? You do the same thing if you're not careful to them because you have more money than them. You don't like when someone looks down their nose at you. Don't you dare look down your nose at someone who is less than you. Money messes people up. You're no better than anybody. You were made in the image of God and so were they. They deserve to be treated with respect and love, just like you want to be treated. This guy here cared only about himself. Money messes people up. Money causes people to cut off family members. Money causes people to become paranoid. Pastor, what does this have to do with anxiety? Oh, it's got a lot to do with it. 
We'll lay that out in point two quite clearly. James chapter 4. James 4 verse 13. Go to now ye that say today or tomorrow we will get into such a city and continue there a year and buy and sell and get gain. Whereas you know not what shall be on the morrow, for what is your life? It is even a vapor that appeareth for a little time, and then vanisheth away. For that ye ought to say, if the Lord will, we shall live, and do this or that. But now ye rejoice in your boastings. All such rejoicing is evil. These people here are not asking God where He would have them go to work. They're saying, well, that city looks like a a money-making opportunity, and that market over there looks like a money-making opportunity. And instead of saying, Lord, what would You have me do? Where would You have me go? I work for You. I don't work for myself. I work to give You glory and honor and praise. I don't work to make myself rich. If I get rich in the process, that's great. But Lord, I want to please You. What would You will, God. This farmer, he presumed that because he had a great harvest, he could build big barns, stow it up, and live the party life. And the Lord said, your presumption is wrong. We see the farmer's prosperity, the farmer's presumption. Notice letter C, the farmer's punishment. The farmer's punishment. Look at Luke chapter 12 and verse number 20. Luke 12 And verse 20, But God said unto him, Thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Then whose shall these things be which thou hast provided? So is he that layeth up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. God was not having it with this man's ungrateful, humanistic heart. So God chose to take him by the way of a heart attack or maybe a brain aneurysm or a stroke. We don't know, but that night he died in his sleep. God may or may not kill you over this behavior, but you should understand that he greatly despises it. So uh, what caused Jesus to even tell this parable? Look at verse 13. Look at Luke 12. Look at verse 13. And one of the company said unto him, Master, speak to my brother that he divide the inheritance with me. Oh, so we have a battle over inheritance money. There's a, there's a battle over inheritance money. I have known lots of people to have battles over inheritance money. Let me say to you, be adults. Be adults. Right? Treat each other. Go back to last week's sermon on the golden rule. Amen? Look at verse 14. And he said unto him, Man, who made me a judge or a divider over you? And he said unto him, Take heed and beware of covetousness, For a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things which he possesseth. Many people live their life by this motto, He who dies with the most toys wins. Our identity should not be wrapped up in how much money we have, but rather in who we are in the Lord Jesus Christ. We see, number one, our finances. Number two, notice our Focus, our focus. This is meant to help us understand exactly um, uh, how God wants us to think about anxiety. Notice letter A, our materialistic desires. Our materialistic desires. Look with me at Luke chapter 12 and verse number 22. The Bible says, And he said unto his disciples, Therefore I say unto you, Take no thought. Don't let your mind worry. Take no thought for your life. What ye shall eat, neither for the body, what ye shall put on. The life is more than meat, and the body is more than raiment. To make my point here, I want to ask you a question. I want you to answer it honestly. You can answer out loud, or you can answer in your own heart, but I want everyone to participate. Here's the question. Why do you go to work? Why do you go to work? 
What I'm about to share with you will completely, radically change the way you view God in the Bible if you will get what I'm about to say. If you go to work to make money or to pay your bills or if someone just said to eat, that is not biblical. It's not biblical. Now, that can be a reason. It should not be the reason. The reason why we are to go to work is because God made us and created us to work. Amen. That's what He made us to do. He made Adam and Eve and He put them in the Garden of Eden. He told them to dress it and to keep it. He didn't put them there to make money. He put them there to work because they're made to work. Do you know, I believe, let me say it that way, that after we go to heaven, we'll continue to work. Work preceded the fall. You're not going to be sitting on a cloud with wings and a harp doing nothing for all of eternity, all right? Again, another lie the culture feeds us. To sort of, you know, make fun of heaven a little bit. Why do you go to work? You go to work to obey the Lord. By the way, you moms in here that stay home with your kids, you don't get a paycheck. And you work 24 hours a day. I mean, listen, I know my wife wants, I've talked about, wants her bedroom door open because there might be a child crying in the other room and she wants to hop off that mattress in a heartbeat and be by their side. A lot of moms, they sleep like the rest of their life once they have a baby. They just do. Because they're constantly at work. Constantly at work. They don't work for a paycheck. And I have no problem with women who go to work and earn a paycheck. I'm not trying to elevate one over the other. I'm just saying here this morning that uh, you shouldn't go to work for a paycheck. You should go to work to obey the Lord. Because He made you to work. And if you're... Oh, please hear me. Oh, I hope there's people that hear me say this. Oh, we have a, a, a whole country full of people that hear me say this. If you're able-bodied and you're sitting around collecting a check from the government, shame on you! Amen. Get off your tailbone and get to work! Why did God? Why do you go to work? You ought to go to work because you're being obedient to the Lord. When we work, we fulfill the purpose for which we were created. When we work, we give ourselves reason to rest. You don't need to rest if you've not gone to work. When we work, we earn the right to eat. If a man does not work, neither should he eat. When we work, we earn enough money to provide for our basic needs. But these things that we accrue should not consume our focus or gaze. When they do, they bring about great anxiety. Now, this isn't some scientific study, but from my observations, the average American owns somewhere between three to five digital devices. The average American household has two cars and a home to look after. And you know what's inside that home? Lots of appliances that easily break. My wife came to me and she said, Hey, our refrigerator is making some funny noises. So you know what I did? I kicked it. No, I'm just kidding. Um, I went in and I, uh, I looked it over and I unplugged it from the wall. Gave it about 30 seconds and plugged it back in and it hasn't made a noise since. You say, well, what are you going to do if the noise comes back? I don't know. I don't know how to fix those things. Um... I guess I'll call a repairman. You know what appliances do? You know what things do? They bring anxiety. If my, what if my alternator goes out? I've got to pay a mechanic. You know, what, what if my uh, hot water heater breaks? 
I've either got to take cold showers or I've got to find the money to pay for that thing. I have this written down in my notes. Worldly things equal unrest or anxiety. Worldly things equal unrest or anxiety. God's things equal rest. I'm going to show you something really cool in the Bible. All right? Maybe uh, this is a verse you know, but I don't know if you've ever seen it quite like this. Turn over to Philippians 4. Philippians 4 and verse number 8. Philippians 4 verse 8. Worldly things bring you the potential of anxiety or unrest. God's things bring you peace. Look at Philippians 4 and look at verse 8. Now, we like to put the emphasis on true, honest, just, pure, lovely, good report, virtue, praise. All right? We want to put the emphasis on that. But look at what the Bible actually says here. Look at verse 8. All right? When I pause, church, you read the word. Ready? Uh, verse 8. It says, Finally, brother, what, brethren, whatsoever things are true. Whatsoever things are honest. Whatsoever things are just. Whatsoever things are pure. Whatsoever things are lovely. Whatsoever things are of good report. If there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things. We're to put our focus on things that are true, honest, just, pure, lovely, good report that bring virtue and praise. You know, maybe we need to declutter and be more minimalist in the way we live our life. Instead of having three laptops, four tablets, smartwatch, two smartphones, two refrigerators, a deep freezer in the basement. Maybe, you know, we, maybe, maybe we need to declutter a little bit. Our materialistic desires drive anxiety. That's our, uh, an improper focus. Let her be noticed. Our mentality of discontentment. Our mentality of discontentment. What was the issue with the man, the farmer in the parable? He was discontent to work. He didn't want to work anymore. God made him to work. He didn't want to do it. Look at verse 25 of Luke 12. And which of you, with taking thought can add to his stature one cubit? If ye then be not able to do that thing which is least, why take ye thought for the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They toil not, they spin not. And yet I say unto you that Solomon, in all his glory, richest man ever to live, was not arrayed like one of these. Jesus is teaching that you worry over things that are totally out of your control. Who here can think... Real hard, and as a result, cause their height to change. Nobody. You cannot add a millimeter to your height by being worried over it. Instead of focusing on what we do have, we tend to focus on what we don't have. Do you know why I don't like to watch the news? Because I can't control what goes on in the world scene. You know who can control those things? God up in heaven. Acts chapter 1 tells us that God is in control of the politics of our world. I meet some Christians, you try to talk to them about the Bible, and they don't have much to say. But as soon as you bring up Donald Trump or Joe Biden, boy, they've got a lot to say. Oh, the passion. Settle down. 
Maybe you need to shut off the news. Amen? I'm not saying you can't know what's going on in the world, but man, we need to stop. Politics is a religion. Is God your God or where is politics your God? Some people bow at the altar of Rachel Maddow or Sean Hannity. Shut that stuff off! You can't control it anyway. The one thing you can do to control it happens every two, two or four years. Go vote. Gather a biblical opinion. Go vote. And you know what? Learn to love the Lord. We waste emotional energy being driven by fear-mongering. And I'm going to tell you whether it's Fox News or whether it's ABC News or all the rest of them, I'm going to tell you right now what they're doing. They're selling you fear. God has not given us a spirit of fear. In fact, Revelation 21.8, one of the great sins listed on that list is those who live in fear. I'm not as good looking as... My car is not as nice as... This is discontentment. If I had this computer, I'd be better at... If I had the brains of such and such, I'd be able to... These threadbare clothes. This lumpy mattress. If I only had a spouse. If I didn't have a spouse. If I only had his or her spouse. If my kids weren't so rebellious. You know what? This attitude of discontentment, it invites anxiety to grip your heart and take over your life. Turn over to Philippians again. Philippians 4. I'm not going to take you back there again. This is the last time. Philippians 4. On the contrary, when we choose to be content with what we have, we choose to be content with how we look. Ladies, I'm not picking on you. Most men, if they're self-aware, they know they're ugly. So they're not worried about their looks. All right? Someone says, you look good. I say, I do what I can from the neck down. From the neck up, it is what it is. Amen? Ladies, are you content with the nose that God gave you? Are you content with the skin tone and skin color God gave you? Are you content with the size of your ears and your your cheekbones and your height and the figure God gave you? Are you content? Anxiety comes when we're comparing ourselves to some worldly standard of what's pretty. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. And take care of yourself. But don't 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 be utter consumed over, well, if I had her nose, or I had her cheekbones. Look at verse eleven of Philippians four. Paul says this not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am, whatsoever state I am, here's peace, here's the absence of anxiety. He says, therewith to be content. Look at verse 12. I know both how to be abased. I know how to have little. I know how to be humiliated. And I know how to abound. Some people are not very good at success. They become arrogant and nasty. Everywhere and in all things, I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry. Both to abound and to suffer need. You know what Paul is saying here? I don't have an ounce of anxiety in my heart. 
Do you know where Paul was when he wrote these words? He was in prison awaiting to get his head chopped off. In a rat-infested prison. Probably sleeping on the floor in shackles. And he says, I'm content. Letter C, our mentality of doubt. Go back to Luke 12 with me. Luke 12, verse 28. Luke 12, 28. If then God so clothe the grass, which is today in the field and tomorrow is cast in the oven, how much more will He clothe you, O ye of little faith? And seek not ye uh, what ye shall eat and, or what ye shall drink. Read the rest of this verse with me. Ready? Neither be ye of a doubtful mind, O ye of little faith. I said in the introduction that anxiety comes as a result of faithlessness. Now listen to this. Show me a man or woman who is strong in their faith toward God and that actively, actively has a daily walk with God and I'll show you a man or woman who deals with little to no anxiety. Why? Because this person trusts God, trusts that God has everything under control and that even in the, hard, uh, even in the hardships of life, God uh, is working a greater good and cause into that person's life. And so bring a hardship on. I know my Creator and my Savior, and I know He signed off on this, and I know He's allowing it. I know He has a purpose in it. I don't have to walk in fear. I don't have to walk around uh, wringing my hands. I don't have to lay in bed at night and toss and turn. I don't need to uh, look for some uh, uh, drug to help uh, sedate me or calm me because I trust that my God has everything under control. I think about Moses and the Israelites. Uh, Moses was a man of great faith. The Israelites corporately were a people of great faithlessness. And God says to Moses, lead them out of Egypt and I'm going to lead you right where to go. And so they're following the pillar of, of, of fire and they walk them right up to the edge of the Red Sea. And they look to the right and there's a rock. And they look to the left and there's a rock. And there's a Red Sea in front of them. And they turn around and here comes the Egyptians looking to take them back into captivity. And uh, we have uh, two different responses to the same problem. The uh, Israelites, they say, Moses, oh Moses, you led us into the wilderness to die. Oh, we're going to die. You're, you're, you're an idiot, Moses. What's wrong with you? Moses stands there. His life is just as much in danger as theirs, if not more, because he's the leader. And he says this. He says, hold your peace. Can I give you the United States bottom vernacular version of hold your peace? Are you ready? Shut up. The longer he led them, the more irritated he got. Just read the Bible. And then he said this, Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. Do you know when Moses said that, he did not know how God was going to deliver, but he knew that God was going to deliver. His life was just as much in danger as theirs. But he said, hold your peace, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. And we have one of the greatest miracles, one of the most spectacular miracles in the whole Bible. The parting of the Red Sea. Do you doubt God? Do you doubt that He has everything in control? You see, when we live in anxiety, we live in doubt of an almighty and powerful God. If your focus is on the materialistic desires, or you have a mentality of discontentment over what you do or don't have, or, or, or you, you, you live with a mentality of doubt, 
then anxiety floods your heart. Let me ask you this morning, where's your focus? Where's your focus? We saw number one, our finances. Number two, our focus. But notice number three, lastly, our faith. Our faith. I'm going to move quickly through this. Notice letter A, content with the Father's provisions. Content with the Father's provisions. Look at Luke chapter 12, verse 24. The Bible says, Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap, which neither have storehouse nor barn, and God feedeth them. How much more are ye better than the fowls? Imagine that this afternoon I walk into my daughter's room. And she's curled up on the bed and she's crying. And I say, April, what's wrong? And she says, Dad, I'm having a panic attack. And I say, well, April, what are you having a panic attack over? And she says, well, Dad, I, I was in the kitchen a few minutes ago and I opened up the refrigerator and, you know, I saw that we have enough food for today and, and maybe tomorrow, but I don't see how we're going to have any food to eat after that. Dad, we're going we're gonna to starve. And I sit on the bed and I begin to run my fingers through her hair. And I say, April, I say, you're 12 years old. I said, um, you know... Um, Every time our refrigerator has gotten close to being empty, either me or your mom has gone to the grocery store and we bought groceries and we have filled it up. Behave, girls, behave. Have filled it up. You've never missed a meal. There's always been a roof over your head. Every time. You don't need to be anxious. I have not seen the righteous forsaken, nor his seed begging bread. Hey, Christian, let me just ask you a question this morning. Why are you anxious? Do you really believe that God is the, the owner of a cattle on a thousand hills that can provide for your every single need? Because if you do, there's no reason... To fret. He is a God who provides. I think about Moses, or rather Abraham, walking up the mount there with Isaac. And Isaac says, Dad, we have the wood and we have the fire, but where is the sacrifice? And uh, or rather Abraham said to his son, Jehovah Jireh, or God will provide himself a lamb. Think about that raven. The raven doesn't have a real job. He flies around every day as a vulture and looks for uh, food to fill his belly. Who is it that provides for the raven? It is God. Who is it that will provide for your emotional needs and your physical needs and your financial needs and your medical needs? It is God. Amen. Our faith. Letter A, content with the Father's provisions. Letter B, confident in the Father's protection. Look with me at Luke chapter 12, verse 32. Luke twelve thirty-two. Fear not, little flock. Fear not, little flock. Imagine a, a flock of animals who are fearful. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. John chapter 10, again, we'll be looking at that this evening. It says, My sheep hear my voice, 27, and I know them and they follow me, and I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them to me is greater than all, and no man, no man, no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. Church, whether it's a global pandemic or a common cold, God is not going to allow any sort of harm or death to happen to you unless He so wills it. Now, you need to exercise the brain God gave you 
And you don't need to tempt fate. But you don't need to walk around in fear when God is in charge of protecting us. Listen up. You can do the same set of, two people can do the same set of actions during a pandemic, and one can be walking in sin, and the other one can be walking in righteousness. You say, how is that possible? Because you can wear a mask and get the, get the vaccine, uh, and, and, and walk through life and take all the precautions and do it by faith, or you can do those things by fear. Walking in fear is the sin. Walking in fear is the sin. You listening to me, church? You need to trust the heart of God. Someone climbs up on top of a... Uh, rather, uh, Satan took Jesus on top of the temple mount and said, uh, Throw yourself down. The angels will save you. And Jesus said, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. We don't need to be out there tempting faith. I don't think you should have gone to a COVID party and had everybody sneezing and coughing on you. Okay, that's just dumb. Alright, don't be doing that kind of thing. But you don't need to alter your entire life to be driven by fear. When you die, God is going to sign that death certificate and He chooses when we go. We walk by faith, not by fear. Let her see. We see we're to be compliant to the Father's plan. Compliant to the Father's plan. Look at Luke 12, verse 31. But rather, seek ye the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added unto you. Let me help your perspective by asking you another question about work. Now listen, I know that we're at the end of the sermon, and I know mentally you want to check out. I've got about three to five minutes left of preaching and we're going to have the invitation. I'm going to ask you to dig deep and give me your mind, all of it, for three to five minutes. Can we do that? Look up here. Who do you work for? Now, if I ask you that question on a Tuesday morning, your answer is probably going to be a little different than on a Sunday morning after the sermon. If I walked up to you at your place of work and I said, who do you work for? You'd say the name of your company or maybe the name of your boss. Who do you work for? If you're gainfully employed, then your primary boss is not the one down the hall. Your primary boss is the God of heaven. Now this, right here, the first question of why do you work and who do you work for, if you get these two things fixed today, it's going to change the way you are a Christian. If God is your boss... And your human boss is your supervisor, then you're going to be obedient to him before you're obedient to some man. So when your boss says, Hey, I need you to work Sundays, look at your father in heaven and say, Do you want me to work on Sundays? And he says, I don't, I want you to go to church. Okay. All right. I'm not dependent on a man to pay my bills, I'm dependent on God to pay my bills. And I'm going to seek His kingdom before I go build some company's kingdom. We okay this morning? We alright? Does not say, build your company's kingdom and then go worship God. No, no, we're to seek the kingdom of God first. And all these things shall be added unto you. Someone here this morning needs to get the pecking order of who they're working for straightened out. Anxiety is what occupies the mind and heart when faith is absent. When we choose to walk by faith, we trust that God has everything under control. 
God never stops growing and developing your reliance on Him or your faith in Him. Uh, He's going to walk you through challenges to strengthen your faith in these realms. Financial, relational, health, employment, emotions. And constantly God is challenging where your faith is. He'll turn up the fire of problems in order to grow you in these areas. And God wants your faith to be strong because to the degree that your faith is strong, to that same degree, anxiety falls away. Let's have every head bowed and every eye closed this morning. Every head bowed, every eye closed. You've been an easy crowd to preach to this morning. You have listened well. I think I've spoken on something that touches the hearts of so many and goes right to the heart of where people live.